How many friends do you have? Think for a minute. How many true friends do you have? Not social media followers, not people that will like your stuff on Twitter. How many really close friends do you have? People that would pick up the phone if you called them at one or two, three o'clock in the morning. If you were in need of a friend, if you needed somebody to help you out, who could you call? Research indicates that the average American has about one and a half really good friends. So take a minute and think, who are those one and a half people in your life that would answer the call no matter what, no matter what time, no matter what you need, and help you out? Those are your true friends. And that's what we're talking about today is friendships and love. We know that loneliness kills, and we know that isolation is not good. So this week, what we're talking about is friendship and love, because friendship and love really go hand in hand. Some of the best, long-lasting love relationships actually start out as friendships. So what is it that brings two people together, whether we're talking about friends or whether we're talking about Um, romantic interests, what is it that brings two people together? Well, there's actually a couple of theories and a couple of, of scientific research that has looked at what brings people together. There's actually some very basic factors that bring people together either as friends or as lovers. The three basic factors that bring people together are proximity, familiarity, and physical attractiveness. So like I mentioned to a lot of students, if you look around and you don't like the people that are around you, you may want to move because proximity, and there's actually a lot of research um, prior to internet dating, the number one factor in where you or who you married was actually proximity. They found that most people married somebody within a five mile radius of their home. And the reason being is that when we are around these people or when we, um, that proximity is that um, in our location, we tend to have people around us that we like, that have similar interests, that are typically, um, we become acquainted with them. In addition, we see them time and time again. And so, When we see these people over time, the mere exposure effect really starts to happen and we actually start to view these people in more positive terms or they become more attractive to us. Think about it. When you pass the same people over and over again um, on your way to class or you see the same people in the grocery stores or you're bumping into the same people at Target or Walmart or wherever you shop you become much more familiar with them. And so that proximity is that we are just um, close to these people every day, so we become much more acquainted with them. And then familiarity is because of these routines, we become more and more exposed to them. And the mere exposure effect is that we tend to increase positive feelings towards somebody and based on our frequent exposures. Uh, You can see the mere exposure effect with a lot of um, political campaigns. They know all about this mere exposure effect. And so that's why they plaster their signs everywhere. 
because they know that you seeing their name over and over and over again, or even seeing their face over and over again, you will start to view them in a more positive light. And so again, if you're seeing these people in your neighborhoods and in your environment over and over again, you're going to start to view them in a more positive um, light or in a more positive atmosphere. And then lastly, it is physical attractiveness. And physical attractiveness um, is just what we'd expect it to be. It is how we rate physical physical attraction. And now physical attraction is obviously subjective. However, there are a couple of um, underlying or even maybe unconscious um, things that we rate as more attractive. For example, people who are younger looking, particularly females who are younger looking, tend to be rated as more attractive. We rate people as more attractive if their facial features are more symmetrical meaning they, um, their eyes in proportion to their head or in proportion to the shape of their face um, are more proportionate. We tend to rate men as being more attractive if they have uh, more mature features. So actually, men who um, appear to be older and more distinguished are rated as more attractive versus women Women who are more younger looking or have neonate kind of qualities tend to be rated as more attractive. Um, We also tend to look at uh, expressive traits such as a big smile, um, high set eyebrows, all of these things we tend to rate as more attractive. Of course, the universal in attractiveness is actually grooming qualities. Hygiene, whether or not a person um, appears as though they have, um, you know, practiced some good hygiene actually tends to be the one universal when it comes to um, attractiveness. And so, even if you don't have, you know, the most youthful looking face or or the most distinguished looking face for men, as long as you are well-groomed and clean, that tends to be one of the most universals. So when we're looking at um, attractiveness and we're looking at um, attraction in general, there are a couple of theories on what attracts people to other people. So when we're looking at attraction, and again, attraction based either in friendships or attraction to love or potential romantic interests, there's actually a couple hypotheses as to why we select the people that we select to be friends with. The first one is the matching hypothesis. And this is that people of similar levels of physical attractiveness tend to gravitate towards each other. And again, whether you're talking about friendships or whether you're talking about romantic relationships, the hypothesis is that, you know, we we tend to um, partner with people who are in the same league as us. And it's not that we're walking around saying, oh, I'm a number five on the attractiveness scale and therefore I can only date or be friends with people who are four, fives, or sixes. However, we know somewhere that people, we don't necessarily make a conscious choice about it, 
but that we maintain friendships and relationships with people that are similar or equitable as far as physical attractiveness. I ask you to think for a minute just about your friends and the the group of people that you hang around most frequently. You can probably see some similarities or um, similarities, even if you think back to your high school friends, about the group that you hung around with and your um, collective attractiveness as a group and the matching how, how the matching hypothesis fits into this. And we know that this exists because whenever we see a couple or we see friends and we say, I don't know, there's something about them, but they just don't seem to fit. And that's what we're talking about is this, this matching hypothesis that we have. And sometimes um, it works, but then there's other relationship studies that have found that it's not really just on physical attractiveness, but it's really more so on a trade. And so another hypothesis on attraction is basically this commodity and that um, males will be more marketable the older that they are because they have more resources and they exhibit a resource of wealth versus females would exhibit a resource of reproduction. And so females who are younger would be in relationships with males who are older because they have that youthfulness to bring to the relationship where the male has the wealth to bring to the relationship. We can see this existing in friend circles as well in that individuals um, bring commodities or certain traits to the friend group that make them kind of marketable to other people and to other friends. So how do we make friends? Well, of course, the first thing is we have to get acquainted. We start, and this kind of factors into that interpersonal communication that we've been talking about. You start with some small talk. You start with some generalizations. And hopefully there is something called reciprocal liking. And reciprocal liking is just that when into other individuals show a liking in you. And so there's some reciprocal nature that hopefully will exist in your behavior. And we found that actually um, you respond to people um, in a much more sincere way who oftentimes are flattering you or doing favors for you or in other nonverbal, there's some other nonverbal cues that we can um, emit or let off that signal to other people that we like them. And these are things like facial expressions, um, eye contact, leaning forward, all of those send a message that we're interested in that person. And so again, even when we're talking about small talk that is occurring maybe in line when you're registering for classes or in a classroom before class starts, or even at you know um, a store when you're out shopping, there are these nonverbal cues that signal to the other person that you're interested or that the conversation is reciprocal, that you're willing to talk with them. And then the other thing that really um, will ignite a relationship or a friendship is similarity. There's been a whole lot of research on whether birds of a feather flock together or whether opposites attract. And what researchers have found is that there is much more support for similarity for birds of a feather than opposites attracting. Opposites attract, especially in, um, you know, short-term romantic relationships. But think about your friends 
and the friends that you have around you. You have to have some similarities. Otherwise, what is going to draw you to that person? What is going to make you want to pick up the phone and call them or carry on a conversation with them if you don't have things in common? And so oftentimes, our friendships will develop out of almost convenience because, you know, we have um, similar classes or we work at the same place. And then out of that convenience, you get to know the person. And then, of course, we move into establishing relationships and establishing relationships requires some of that self-disclosure. And so once we have started to have some reciprocal liking, we found some similarities, then we start to um, actually be kind of mindful about self-disclosure and self-disclosure in maintaining the relationship. Um, Whether you're talking about friendships or whether you're talking about uh, intimate relationships, the key is maintaining that self-disclosure. When there's a Um, low degree of self-disclosure or mindfulness or minding, um, then that is when relationships really start to degrade and start to decrease. Um, You have to have um, that level of self-disclosure in order to maintain a relationship. And again, this is true for friendships or even for uh, romantic relationships. If you think back about friendships that have ended, Friendships that have ended have probably ended over either, you know, similarities changing. So um, especially when you're going through a transition period, like from high school to college or from high school to the working world or even from middle school to high school, there's a lot of transitions that occur during that time period and similarities may start to decrease. And then when similarities start to decrease, then you have this lack of disclosure. I don't even know. I can't talk to that person about this anymore because they don't feel the same way about it. Or, you know, every time I try and talk to them about it, they kind of get closed off. And so when that those similarities decrease and that self-disclosure starts to decrease, that really starts to erode at the basis of the friendship or basis of the relationship. And so then the relationship really moves back into more of an acquaintance stage as opposed to being a friendship. And no different than any type of relationship, friendships take work as well. And friendships are really, really important because we've actually found that Friendship quality is really a great predictor of our overall happiness. Um, Friendships really provide uh, very satisfying basic psychological needs and really provide a cushion and help us to deal with stress and stressful life events that happen in our life. They actually help us with um, being more optimistic and less stress in adulthood and less troublesome behavior in adolescence. So what makes a good friend? So there are three common themes in all friendships that really help to make a good friend and a good friendship. The first one is the emotional dimension. Again, that self-disclosure that we were talking about, expressing affection and support that is really beneficial in a friendship. And again, if you think about your close friends that you have in your life, 
that it's probably because they're probably close friends or you rate them as close friends because they have this um, self-disclosure. You are willing to engage in self-disclosure with them. And they're also, um, they provide that emotional support for you. The second thing is a communal nature of friendship, meaning that they're mutually shared experiences. We um, look at, when we look at friendships, friendships are just that, they're two-way streets. And so in order to maintain a friendship, it can't be one-sided. It can't be one person feeling like they're giving all the time or one person feeling like they're doing all the work all the time and the other person not putting any effort in. And so there has to be this mutual aspect or mutual shared activities. Again, this kind of factors into that similarity. Having those similar interests will help to build these mutual experiences. And then the third thing that really factors into a good friendship is sociability and compatibility. You have to have that compatibility. Um, friends are the source of fun and recreation. But if you think again about your friends that are in your close friend circle, it's the probably that these friends, you share um, activities, but you also um, you know, share that source of fun and recreation. So a lot of times friendships may start out by that near exposure effect where you're exposed to these people time in and time again, and you're doing lots of activities, you're in lots of groups or in lots of clubs or in lots of, um, you see them a lot at work, whatever the situation is. And then over time, you also, though, have to have some shared fun and recreation experiences. Maybe you see them at work a lot and after work, you're like, hey, you want to go out and, you know, we're all we're all going to play trivia together. Um, and so then you have this shared experience, this sociability. And then again, over time, once those experiences happen, you engage in some self-disclosure and some um, emotional support. And so these are really the three key factors that um, are really make a good friendship and a lasting friendship as well. Now, there are, um, obviously, friendships are no different than any interpersonal relationship, and so they will experience some conflict. And especially long-term friendships are bound to experience conflict because we have that emotional connection with this person. We have the emotional aspects. And so there's really um, three main uh, kind of steps in friendships or rituals that hopefully can help repair a friendship. And the first one is reproach. And reproach is when the person who is offended or the person who is hurt or the person that is bothered by the relationship or uh, feels like there's a problem in the relationship approaches the other person and ask for an explanation or um, approaches the other person and airs their grievances. So the other person would say, you know, I'm really hurt by the way that you left me out, or I'm really hurt by the fact that, you know, you, you don't call me anymore. And so then the offender or the second, the other person in the relationship offers a remedy. And maybe this remedy is taking responsibility. Maybe it's offering justification. Maybe it's 
um, you know, some kind of apology or a combination. You know, gee, I'm so sorry. I didn't even realize that this was happening. Um, I've just been really busy. I haven't been calling anybody lately. Or maybe it's, gee, I'm so sorry. You know, like some things have changed. We um, don't necessarily, I don't, I don't necessarily see things the same way anymore. And then finally is acknowledgement, and that is when the initial party accepts the remedy and the friendship progresses, or they maybe they don't accept the remedy and the friendship doesn't doesn't progress. At any point in time, you know these steps can be negated, or these steps can change, or these steps can be repeated over time. Um, oftentimes, when you're in a relationship or you're in a friendship with somebody, and you experience this self-disclosure and you experience this vulnerability, it changes um, the relationship. And if somebody gets hurt um, by that, then again, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about interpersonal communication and how things can be misconstrued and misperceived. And when people get um, hurt in friendships or in relationships, it's oftentimes difficult to repair that um, and move on. And so sometimes the, it would mean that the resolution would be to resolve the friendship or to even potentially go their separate ways. And although friendships can be complicated, friendships are also very rewarding. And again, as I mentioned, they're really a great predictor of our overall happiness. We have found some differences that occur between friendships. Um, friendships, female friendships tend to involve much more disclosure. And so they tend to experience much more conflict. And because of the emotional nature of female friendships, whereas male friendships tend to um, engage in much more similar interests, um, activities that are similar, um, you know, doing things and and um, having similar work schedules or working in the same in similar locations. And just as difficult as friendships are, romantic love is that much more difficult. And we see some differences between males and females when it comes to love as well. Um, men tend to fall into love much more quickly, whereas uh, women tend to um, uh, report more physical symptoms of love. They tend to feel more um, actual heartache when relationships end. They also tend to have feelings like floating in the clouds and tend to uh, verbalize and display their emotions a little bit more. Uh, we also note that women uh, tend to fall out of love more easily than men. And a lot of this is grounded in the fact uh, of that self-disclosure. Women engage in more self-disclosure in friendships, but they also engage and expect more self-disclosure in romantic relationships as well. Um, interestingly, uh, romantic relationships and romantic love seems to be the same regardless of a person's sexual orientation. And so regardless of your sexual orientation, people tend to experience um, romantic love in a very similar uh, pattern. So let's look at some theories on romantic love. 
One theory on romantic love is Robert Sternberg's triangular theory of romantic love or triangular theory of love. And that basically what Robert Sternberg said is that there's three components to love. There is intimacy, passion, and commitment. Now, intimacy, when we're looking at intimacy, we're talking about that self-disclosure. So we're talking about emotional intimacy. When we're talking about passion, we're talking about physical passion, that, you know, uh, attraction that you feel. I like to use the example of movie stars or, um, you know, YouTubers or anybody that you don't know, you've never met in person, but you feel this physical passion for them. That is sheerly based on physical attraction. There's nothing else. You don't really know anything about this person. You've never met the person. And so passion is really referring to that sexual attraction. And then the last thing is commitment. And commitment is just that. How um, uh, how much of a um, decision or how much you feel Um, indebted to that person, either in short-term or long-term aspects, how much you're willing to devote and determine to that relationship. And so basically what Sternberg outlined is that based on these three components, you can really define any relationship. And I encourage you to look at the um, illustration, figure 9.5 in your textbook on Sternberg's triangular theory of love. Because looking at this, we can understand how not only we may misconstrue some relationships and misconstrue our emotions, but we can also understand the different types of love. For example, there is... um, you know, liking. When we like somebody, all we have is that intimacy. And these are a lot of our friendships. Yeah, we like them. We have engaged in some self-disclosure, but not a lot of self-disclosure. And then on the flip side, we can have intimacy and commitment, which is companionate love. And companionate love is when you have a lot of self-disclosure and you feel really engaged in the relationship. These would most likely be your best friends. You share everything with them. You engage in a high level of self-disclosure or you have a high level of intimacy. You're also very committed to them. So if they were to call you at three o'clock in the morning and say, hey, I need help, you would go and you wouldn't even think about it. Those are your best friends. That is companionate love. That is, I love you like a friend. Um, You oftentimes, and this is depicted in the movies all the time, when they say, I love you, I'm just not in love with you. What they mean is, I have companionate love for you. I have a high level of intimacy and a high level of commitment for you, but I'm not in love with you. Meaning, I don't want to rip off your clothes. I don't have that passion for you anymore. And then when we're looking at relationships um, that just include passion, on the flip side, just that physical attraction, you have infatuation. And this is really easy to see again when you look at like movie stars or, um, you know, singers or rappers or whoever you have a physical attraction to, it's just infatuation. You are physically drawn to this person, but you don't know anything about them. You haven't disclosed anything. You don't have an emotional connection to them, and you don't have any commitment to them, meaning that when the next 
good looking face walks by, you're going to be just as infatuated with them as you were with the first movie star or whoever else. Now, when you have um, passion and commitment, that is fatuous love. And fatuous love is just that. You are very physically attracted to this person and you're committed to this person. So you're probably in a relationship with them, but you don't have a high level of self-disclosure. And this oftentimes is what happens, um, and we'll talk about this when we get into marriage a little bit, this can happen with relationships where you start off with a high level of passion and commitment. You're very physically attracted to the person, but if you don't have that self-disclosure, then it's going to kind of erode away at the relationship. It's not going to be a long-lasting relationship because you need to have that self-disclosure as well. And so this is when, um, you'll have a lot of, a lot of times, um, adultery occurs because of fatuous love, because you may have a relationship. You may be in a marriage where there's a lot of companionate love, meaning there's a lot of intimacy and a lot of commitment, but there's not a lot of passion. And so then you meet somebody and you have a lot of passion with them. And that is, that may start a fatuous love or a fatuous love relationship where you're passionate and committed to them, but you don't have a high level of intimacy. And then there's also romantic love. Romantic love is a high level of intimacy and a high level of passion, but not a high level of commitment. This is also depicted a lot of times in the movies because you have somebody who, you know, um, travels abroad for the summer or is doing an internship somewhere and they meet somebody and they, they have a high level of disclosure with them. They talk about all their hopes and dreams and fears, and they also have a lot of physical attraction for this person, but they know that at the end of the summer or at the end of the semester, they're going back to their life and they are not going to be committed to this person at all. And so you see that depicted a lot of times in the movies. And then of course, there's empty love. Empty love is when you only have commitment. You don't have any intimacy. You don't have any passion. And when we talk about this in the classroom, I hear a lot of students who will characterize their parents' relationships as having empty love, meaning they feel like their parents are only married because of the kids, that their parents don't talk to each other. Their parents aren't passionate for each other anymore. And so they have what they would term as empty love. And there probably are a good amount of relationships out there that engage in empty love. They are just committed alone. And another way of looking looking at this is if you have siblings, siblings that you get along with, but maybe you don't share everything with them. Obviously, you don't have passion. You don't have physical attraction for your siblings. And for some of you, you may not even have intimacy with your siblings, meaning that you don't have a lot of self-disclosure with your siblings. They're not your best friends but you still feel committed to them. So if your siblings were to call and be in need of something, you would go and help them, but you don't have a whole lot of self-disclosure and obviously no passion. And that would be another example of empty love. Of course, the most ideal is consummate love. Consummate love is a relationship and the most long-term and long-lasting type of relationship is consummate love. And it has a high level of intimacy, meaning that your significant other or your romantic interest is also your best friend. You share everything or you share a lot with them. 
You also have to have a high level of passion, meaning you have to be physically attracted to them. Uh, We know that physical attraction plays a big part. And so you have to have that passion. And then lastly, of course, you have to have that commitment and you have to have mutual commitment from both parties. Um, So Sternberg really kind of addresses all of the different types of love that we experience in the different types of relationships, whether we're talking about friendships or we're talking about long-term lasting loving relationships, he really addresses all of them with these three um, variables or these three commonalities. Another um, theory on romantic love is based in attachment. And this is the theory, um, this is Cindy Hazen and Philip Shaver's um, romantic love theory based on attachment styles. And there's a lot of research that has gone into attachment styles. And so really quickly, what infant attachment is, is infant attachment is that first relationship that you form with your primary caregiver. And so if you think back, this was probably your mom or your dad or your grandmother or whoever um, kept you or cared for you most frequently as an infant. And so infant attachment really starts to uh, form Um, almost immediately there's a bonding and then it moves into um, a relationship. And um, it really, infant attachment forms the basis for which um, infants and toddlers and then children will base all of their relationships on. And this was the work of John Balby and Mary Ainsworth. And so when we look at attachment styles, there are some basic attachment styles that Mary Ainsworth identified. And so the first one is secure attachment. And secure attachment, um, really uh, what happens with a secure attachment is that the infant uses their primary caregiver as like a home base. And so as they are um, exploring the world around them, um, they will rely predominantly on uh, this relationship that they have with their primary caregiver. And this relationship is rooted in a warm and kind of responsive parenting style. So the parent allows the child to um, make decisions and allows the child some autonomy, but also is warm and caring and in a very responsive way. And so the vast majority of American children develop a secure attachment. And then as adults, they will... Um, develop relationships that model this secure attachment. And these are that they are very trusting. They find it easy to get close to people. They're comfortable with some mutual dependency. They don't really worry about being abandoned. And so secure adults tend to have longer lasting relationships. They tend to have fewer divorces. um, And they tend to Um, describe their parents as as being very warm and loving and and responding to them in a warm and loving nature. The second type of attachment or infant attachment style that um, we'll identify is the anxious um, ambivalent attachment style. And with the anxious ambivalent attachment, uh, these babies kind of display a range of emotions. And so instead of using their parent as a secure base, 
these infants oftentimes will cry and get upset. And then when they're try when the mother tries to comfort them or tries to um, care for them, then they oftentimes these babies get upset and even push their mothers away or try and reject or punish their mothers or their primary caregivers. These types of relationships really develop because of inconsistencies in parent responses. So if a parent doesn't always respond in a very similar way, or if one time a baby cries and the parent is very loving towards them, and the next time the baby cries and the parent responds in a very aggressive or um, aggravated manner, the baby doesn't necessarily know how this parent is going to respond. And so they develop kind of an anxious or ambivalent um, attachment style. And so as adults, these people who have this anxious, ambivalent attachment style uh, tend to be um, obsessed and preoccupied with their relationships. They tend to overanalyze their relationships. They tend to seek out and want more close relationships, but they oftentimes get very jealous and they have overwhelming feelings of abandonment. Um, they tend to have relationships that are shorter in duration because they um, uh, are seeking out a lot of relationships, but oftentimes don't know how to respond appropriately in relationships. Um, when they talk about their relationships with their parents, they tend to um, describe their parents as being less warm and oftentimes um, feel like their parents had very unhappy marriages and that their relationship with their parents and their parents' relationships were not happy or um, very secure. And then the last type of attachment style is a um, avoidant attachment style. And so avoidant infants, uh, avoidant infants do that. They just avoid forming a attachment or forming a secure attachment with their primary caregiver. And so what happens with the avoidant attachment style is that because they um, they tend to be very independent and they tend to not form a secure attachment with their primary caregiver, um, they tend to, as adults, have fear and feelings of uncomfort when getting close to people. They are often reluctant to trust people. They tend to be very untrusting and tend to approach relationships um, from a almost condescending standpoint. They tend to want to keep their distance, their emotional distance, particularly from other people. And so you hear these people often refer to themselves or talk about how, you know, like they set up walls and they um, like to keep people at a distance. And they tend to rate um, positive relationships or they tend to rate relationships as being lower and less important. Um, they also uh, tend to relate or tend to identify their um relationship with their parents as being cold and rejecting and not very loving at all. So why look at attachment styles to begin with? Um, attachment styles tend to uh, really kind of, again, lay that foundation for relationships that we have as infants. 
And so we found that these attachment styles tend to correlate with adult attachments over time and tend to be a good indicator of how adults will conduct themselves in relationships um, as adults and also be a um, tend to um, be stable over time, although it's not necessarily set in stone. And there are a lot of things that people can do to change this um, and to change their relationships. And so if you start to think about your relationships around you and become concerned about the fact that maybe you didn't have a secure, close attachment as an infant, it's okay. It doesn't mean the demise. There's lots of things that you can do and you can engage in a lot of um, self-disclosure. You can also engage um, in some behaviors that will really help to um, change these patterns and help you develop more relationships as you age. And we'll talk about that as we go forward. So what about romantic relationships? Why do romantic relationships end? Well, there's really a couple of um, key factors that, or five factors that really are prominent when looking at why romantic relationships end. The first one is premature commitment. Premature commitment or jumping into a relationship. And this goes back to Sternberg's triangular theory of love. Oftentimes we um, have passion for an individual and we experience a lot of intimacy. And so we automatically jump into a relationship and we feel that we're committed to that person. When in actuality, we don't really know a whole lot about the individual. We oftentimes that passion will drive us to jump into a committed relationship. And then as we start to um, learn more about the person, we realize this isn't really what I wanted. Um, and the same can be true for friendships as well. You may find some similarities with a person and automatically you may feel like, oh, we just clicked. And so you jump into a friendship with them. And then all over time, you start to learn more things about the person and you decide we aren't as similar as what we thought we were. The second uh, prominent factor is ineffective communication and conflict management skills. So we talked about in interpersonal communication, those conflict management skills. And if you have incompatible conflict management skills or, and in addition, you may have ineffective communication skills. And so when you have ineffective communication skills or incompatible um, conflict management skills, it creates a lot of stress in the relationship. And it may lead to increasing withdrawal and increasing, um, you know, increasing conflict. And nobody wants that in any relationship. And so that may be also, and this again, can be true of friendships as well. If you have ineffective communication in a friendship, that too will lead to the demise of a friendship. Becoming bored with a relationship. We will see as we talk about with marriages that marriages go through um, a very cyclical nature in which there's this romantic um, whirlwind honeymoon period. And unfortunately, the honeymoon period fades very quickly. And we all expect it to continue. We expect to live happily ever after. But the reality is that relationships, whether they're romantic relationships or friendships, they take work. 
And so um, oftentimes when we don't put in the work, we can become bored with that relationship. And then the novelty kind of fades and we can find other relationships around us. And that leads to the next one, which is availability of more attractive relationships. And that's what happens is that then oftentimes we may find, you know, if if our relationship is lacking self-disclosure, you're growing apart is what people frequently say. But if it's lacking self-disclosure, it's oftentimes because you found self-disclosure in another relationship. And it may be as simple as you found self-disclosure in a friendship versus in a romantic relationship. But if you're not experiencing that self-disclosure with your romantic partner or with your loved one, then that's going to be a weakness in that relationship that is going to find, and you'll find that the other relationship is more attractive. You're getting more rewarding um, behavior out of the other relationship, which may be self-disclosure. And so then you're going to drift apart or the other relationship will be more attractive. And then lastly is low levels of satisfaction. Um, low levels of satisfaction, and this is actually kind of an interesting one because what happens frequently is when we start to experience um, a low level of satisfaction, you know, your romantic partner did something that really kind of made you mad. And then all of a sudden you start to think about all of the things that make you mad. And this is kind of a vicious cycle um, that happens in a lot of relationships where we start to think about everything about that person that has made you mad. And so naturally, because you're thinking about it now all the time, that's going to lead you to less satisfying um, feelings about the relationship. And so it becomes really this negative cycle that is just very easily demises the relationship because you're thinking about what makes you mad about them and that makes you more angry and that makes you think about more things that make you angry about that person. And so naturally that relationship is not going to be satisfying at all. So what are some ways to combat these things? Well, first of all, take plenty of time to get to know the other person before you jump into that long-term relationship. Again, based on Sturberg's theory, the best predictor of whether dating couples will um, continue is their level of intimacy and commitment. So that intimacy or that self-disclosure really is key for long-lasting relationships and long-lasting marriages. And so you have to have that um, similarities, you have to have those positive feelings, and you have to have that commitment and that self-disclosure in order to maintain a relationship. Also, emphasizing positive qualities about your partner or your relationship. Longer lasting relationships have this in common, that instead of finding all of the things that are wrong with your partner, you find all the things that are right with your partner. And this is really a key aspect in a long lasting relationship because the reality is, is we wouldn't want anybody else to point out all of our faults and all of the things that we do wrong or that we, uh, that annoy us about other, that, uh, annoy other people about us. So we shouldn't be finding all of those negatives about our partner. And so when we enter, um, into a relationship, finding the positives. And these are very easy to do very early on in a relationship. And so I encourage you early on in a relationship, 
write them down. Make a list of all of the things that you love about that person. Because if you find those things that you love about them now, then when they start to annoy you or they start to do things that are displeasing to you, you can refer back to this list and hopefully find the positives that still exist or accentuate the positives. Finding ways to bring new and novel, uh, bring novelty to long-term relationships is also a great um, way. You know, as I mentioned, all relationships go through this kind of cyclical nature in which they experience boredom. And so there's lots of research out there, especially for long-lasting marriages and relationships, that in order to um, kind of ward off this boredom, one of the things they suggest is to date. Go out on dates again. Make it a point to schedule dates with your um with your spouse or your long-term lover or whoever it is to maintain that relationship. Um, there has to be uh, some level of excitement, um, doing exciting activities together. Uh, as we talked about early on in the chapters on emotions, doing exciting things together will help you ward off some of that boredom. Go ride a roller coaster, of course, if you both like it, with your loved one, because that will help to invigorate, excite those emotions and ward off some of that boredom. And then developing effective conflict management styles. Um, and this is, uh, as we've mentioned before, and we talked about conflict resolution, this is really key. Learning about your partner and understanding that one of the most common patterns to dissatisfied couples is when there's a demand withdraw pattern. When one person demands that they talk about it and the other person wants to withdraw. And so this pattern of avoidance really um, does not help to uh, increase self-disclosure. It actually helps to draw people away from self-disclosure. And so that's really kind of a key in ensuring that you develop those relationships. Now, obviously, um, the internet has caused a lot of, the internet is really kind of a self or a double-edged sword when it comes to relationships, because for some people, it has helped increase their social skills. Um, it allows for an opportunity for more self-disclosure because of the anonymity, uh, the nature of, you know, we're kind of behind the screen and we can be anonymous and we can say things that we wouldn't normally say face-to-face. And so it allows people to exercise that self-disclosure. However, we have found that the vast majority of people online lie and they lie about basic things like their height, their weight, their income, all of that great stuff. And so when it comes to dating, it really tends to be a self or a self uh, a double-edged sword in that there is some self-disclosure that occurs. However, we also have to be weary and mindful of the things, the um, misrepresentations that occur in online um, dating. And online relationships also tend to be a double-edged sword when we come to addressing loneliness. Um, loneliness, really, there's lots of different types of loneliness. However, 
um, everybody will experience loneliness at some point in time, whether it be just social loneliness, whether it be transitional loneliness or transient loneliness. So there's transitional loneliness, which is when we're moving from one relationship to another, maybe there's a disruption in your social network um, that oftentimes happens with divorce. Uh, a lot of people will experience transitional loneliness because they're transitioning from being married to being divorced. And oftentimes that comes with um, a breakup of a lot of friendships because these were friendships that you had when you were married or when mutual friendships. There's also transient loneliness. Transient loneliness is sporadic loneliness that occurs when experiences in your life change. Major transitions occur, like going from being a high school student to being a college student, going from being a college student to being an adult. And so during those time periods, as you are transitioning and your friends are transitioning, you may experience some loneliness. And then there's also chronic loneliness. Chronic loneliness is people who are unable to develop, um, you know, a satisfying interpersonal relationship for a long period of time. Now, we all experience some loneliness, and we oftentimes, it's um, portrayed that elderly individuals experience the most amount of loneliness, but in actuality, it's adolescents that are experiencing, adolescents and early adulthood are the individuals who are experiencing the most amount of loneliness, and oftentimes, it is because of the internet. Social trends and um, tend to be promoting uh, loneliness and disconnection. We believe that we're more connected because we have social media, but the reality is, is that social media actually makes us more lonely. Researchers have found that if you, um, if you are online or engage in social media for longer than two hours, two hours or more a day, you experience higher levels and report higher levels of loneliness and depression. So what would help with this? Well, actually engaging in social interactions. And even if you have poor social skills, uh, making a deliberate effort to engage in conversations with other people, um, making a deliberate effort to engage in social experiences rather than withdrawing. And the other thing that plays a really key part is self-defeating. Self-defeating behaviors or self-defeating talk is oftentimes a, um, or is rated as one of the most um, distracting or unattractive qualities of an individual. So when you engage in self-defeating behavior, these are things like uh, when somebody tries to give you a compliment, you're like, oh, no, I am not. I, you know, am so ugly today. Or people who engage in self-defeating behavior are the people that are constantly saying things like, oh, nobody likes me. Nobody wants to be around me. Uh, people are just leaving me all the time. That's self-defeating behavior. And not only is it unattractive and one of the barriers to effective relationships, it's also one of the things that helps to end relationships. And so making an effort to not engage in self-defeating behavior will also help to increase your friendships and increase the likelihood of long-lasting relationships. Again, getting out 
and engaging in conversations with other individuals is one of the best ways to combat loneliness. Eye contact, maintaining eye contact with an individual will increase your oxytocin production, which is that love and that feel-good hormone, which will actually help to decrease your depression. So get out, make some eye contact with individuals, engage in some good, fun conversation, and have a great week.